Your Bibles, if you would please, to the epistle of 1 John chapter 4. And this evening we want to look again at this grand statement that the Apostle John makes about the love of God in verses 7 through 12. The Apostle Paul wrote probably the most well-known scripture that we have in the Bible on love, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And there Paul uh, tells us or shows us that love is a distinguishing characteristics of Christians, but he mentions their spiritual gifts and the knowledge of doctrine and faith that's great enough even to move mountains. And But he said, without love, I am nothing. And John states those same ideas here in the fourth chapter in a shortened form. And he adds to it explaining that love is the character of God and those that are born of God will show the same character. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the Apostle Paul's greatest passage about love. Here's where we find the Apostle John's greatest writing on love. So if you look at verse number 7 in the 4th chapter, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. And his love is perfected in us. If we wanted to reduce this passage of Scripture to the simplest of terms, it would be the difference between believers and unbelievers, and that difference is love. Now, as we know, 1 John contains a lot of these contrasts. It's filled with statements that are contrasts between the difference of believers and unbelievers. There's a doctrinal contrast between the two. Uh, Believers have the right Christology, They avow the full deity and the humanity of Christ. Believers have the right view of the scriptures. We affirm that the Bible is the only authority of faith and practice. And unbelievers are people who deny those same truths. Their Christology is wrong. Their views of the Bible are wrong. And I know that those are fairly simplified statements, but I make those to to point out to you that being a Christian is a doctrinal issue. You can't ignore the fundamental doctrines of Scripture and of the Christian faith and still be a Christian. I don't want to make uh, deal with this particular issue tonight, and and, um, I hesitate somewhat to even talk about this at this particular time, but a good example of what I'm talking about is Mother Teresa. She was someone who was lauded as a kind and gentle person. She was a self-sacrificing person. And I don't think anybody that, that ever read newspapers or heard about her would say that she was anything different from that. But she didn't believe that the only way that a person could go to heaven was through Jesus Christ. She said that she respected all religions. But for her personally, she really did love her Jesus. And that sort of reduces Jesus to a God among gods. He's just a little bit better than the others. But that view of Christ is the wrong Christology. That is not a biblical Christology. And so as kind as she might have been and as beneficent as she might have been, you couldn't call her a Christian because she had the wrong views of Jesus Christ. And I know that's not popular. 
and I probably won't get a spot on Caleb on the radio to talk about that, but uh, it's the truth according to the Apostle John. Being a Christian is a doctrinal matter, and you can't ignore the Scriptures and still be a Christian. And then there's also the contrast that John uh, shows us here of believers and unbelievers on the issue of morality. Believers obey God's commandments, and unbelievers do not. Now, a believer may sin. He does have sin in his life, but it's not the habit of his life. And, and that contrast is explained extens- extensively in chapter 3, verse number 9, where John says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. So John says that when a person claims to be a Christian, but there is no evidence of holy and righteous living, then that person can't be a Christian. And so you have a contrast here between believers and unbelievers, doctrine and morality, and this is not an either-or. You have to have both of those, or a person is not a Christian. So those are important contrasts. But the main contrast, and the most important one, is the one that we have before us here tonight— And that's the contrast of practicing love and being without love. John addressed that subject on two previous occasions in the epistle. But here is where we find the real underlying root reason why a Christian must be defined by love. Verse number 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So a Christian is a person that is born of God. And you can be a lot of things, you can do a lot of things, a lot of good things, you can believe a lot of the right things, but the only reason that you are a Christian is because you have been born of God. Now, when you're born physically, you have the DNA of your parents. And if there was any doubt whether you're the biological child of your parents, then uh, a paternity test can be made to determine if your father is really your father. Or a maternity test can be made to determine if your mother is really your mother. And here the Apostle John is telling us that if you are really a child of the Father God, then you are going to have his nature. Now, we talked about that last time as the essence of God's love. Now, a very important statement about the nature of God is made in the end of verse number 8. John says, God is love. And God is, or love is not just an attribute of God, it's his nature. So that everything that God does, he does in a loving manner. As one writer said, God is love does not mean that love is one of God's activities, but it means that everything that God does, every activity, is a loving activity. God is love also tells us that God is the source of all love. And of course, that would mean love that's defined as the Bible defines it. Love is not the definition that I put on it. Love is a a very common word that people use. We hear it all of the time. But what we mean by love is not, necessarily, is not necessarily what the Bible means by love. True love is defined by God. And in this passage, John tells us what God's love is. God's love is a demonstrated love. And it's demonstrated so that we know that he's the source and that it's his nature. Now, another truth about God's love is that if love is absent from your life, then you're godless. Now, it, it feeds back simply back into that, to that uh, parental nature of God. The paternity test for us is love. And so you can make all the claims that you want you're, that you're a Christian, but if love does not show up in your life, then you cannot be a Christian. 
Now this evening I want to go on uh, to speak to you about the expression of God's love. In Romans 5, verse number 8, Paul said, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Commendeth means demonstrated. He showed his love to us, and he did it in a certain way. Well, how do we know that God is love? Well, here we see that he demonstrated this by sending his own son into the world to die for us. Now, John's way of stating that is in verses 9 and 10. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this evening, we're going to start out with, the, with this premise of, of the definition of biblical love and show you how God demonstrated this particular definition. What is love? Well, we're defining it here. Love is self-sacrificing and seeks the positive good of another at one's own cost. Love is self-sacrificing and seeks the positive good of another at one's own cost. And since all of God's activity is loving activity, if that's true, then it should be apparent to us that from the creation of the world, of this physical universe and the spiritual world in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 1, all the way into the uh, promise of heaven, the eternal bliss of heaven in Revelation chapter 22, that all of that and everything in between is the expression of God's love. Now, the principal underlying theme of the Bible is what W.A. Criswell called the scarlet thread of redemption. And that scarlet thread is Jesus. He's the expression of God's love. So Jesus is God's loving gift to the world. Now, we want to notice some things about this gift that God gave. First of all, it was a unique gift. Now, the wording in 1 John 4, verse 9 is very important. Uh, I said a moment ago that God sent Jesus, but that's not the way that John said it. John didn't say Jesus, and John didn't say God sent Christ, and he didn't say that God sent Jesus Christ. He said God sent his only begotten Son. And that wording is very important because what it does is to convey the close personal relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse number 18, John said the only begotten Son was in the bosom of the Father. And that's not just an expression of the oneness of the Son with the Father. It is that, but it's put there to convey the meaning that there's a strong love between them. There's a bond, there's an affection between them that's higher than anything that we ever know. And there's a bond between the Father and the Son that was so close that when that bond was broken and when Christ was offered up for our sins, the worst agonizing part of Christ's suffering was that breaking of fellowship with his Father. On the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there never was a cry that was as heartfelt and as torturous as what Jesus said there. And we can understand that a little bit better when we read the many passages that are in the Word of God concerning Christ's love for his Father and also the love that his Father has for him. In John 15, verse number 10, Jesus said that he abides in the Father's love. And so for the Father to give up his Son to die for us, that was an incomparable gift. 
Well, the uniqueness of that gift is also shown in these words, his only begotten son. Only begotten does not speak of the genesis of Christ. Not like the Jehovah Witness believe that Christ had a beginning. This does not mean that Christ had a beginning. And it doesn't mean that Christ is not eternal. Only begotten is an expression of the uniqueness of Christ. And what that means is that there is no other like him. There's none like him. And why is there none like them? Because there is no son that's identical in nature to the father. And so God couldn't have given a more unique gift because there is none like Christ. He couldn't have given a more valuable gift because what value could he ever place upon God himself? I didn't intend this as a part of the message, but before I came in this evening, I was just kind of browsing around the bookshelf and there just waiting for services to start. And I picked up a book off the shelf that was, I can't remember the name of it, but it had something to do with Jehovah Witnesses. And on the, on the title page of the book, I, I know this was written by a Jehovah Witness, and I didn't even get a chance to look through it. But it, but it talked about the very, the title page talked about how Michael became Jesus. And uh, of course, they're, they're ascribing to Jesus that he is maybe a divine being, but he's not the eternal son of God. Well, if he's not the eternal son of God, then the uniqueness of the gift is not there. This is a unique gift. There's no one that matches the gift that God gave when he gave his own son. And you get a sense of the, of the magnitude of this when you read Colossians chapter 1. Now, I want us to go there for just a moment, and we're going to read this passage. And while you're turning there, we, we could refer to Philippians chapter 2, which says that Christ is equal to God. But this one in Colossians speaks perfectly about the magnitude of this gift. There is nobody like Christ. I mean, what more valuable gift could be given? What is more valuable than God himself? Now, here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul starts out in verse number 12 giving thanks. What do you give God thanks for? Well, you give him thanks for something he's done for you or something that he's given you. So Paul says in verse number 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers, that means fit to be the partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now you read those verses and you would have to think, where could you ever get a gift like this? Because Jesus Christ is the one by whom God made the visible and the invisible worlds. He's the one that holds the universe together. Galaxies are held in their place by the power of the Son of God. The planets are held in their orbit by God's power, by the power of Jesus Christ. The earth maintains its distance from the sun only because of the power of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that everything consists by him. Now, in our definition of love, we see there, the definition says it has to be personally costly. Love has to be personally costly to the one that gives. So how are you going to measure this gift? Where where are you going to put a value on this gift? It's an infinite gift. Now, in Scripture, we're given examples to help us to understand things. 
when you explain things to people, you say, let me give you an example. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul said that the stories that we have in the Old Testament are given to us as examples. And the same concept of the only son shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis with the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2, 22 for just a moment. And this is the story of when Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And I've explained to you before that Moriah is the same place where many years later Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. Today that place is known as the Temple Mount. The entire mountain range is actually known as Moriah, and so that would also include Mount Calvary where Jesus was crucified. Now, we're just going to read a couple of verses here, and if you like to make notes in your Bible, this is one of those places where you might want to underline this and put a link to 1 John 4 and the scripture that we're studying tonight, 1 John 4 verse 9. And in the first verse of Genesis 22, it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham, or that means to test him, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now, probably most people would read that. And when God says to Abraham, take your only son, they would say, well, uh, Isaac was not Abraham's only son. But Isaac was the son of promise. He was the beloved son of Abraham. Now, of course, Abraham already had Ishmael, but the uh, relationship between Abraham and Ishmael was a different one because he wasn't a legitimate son. Isaac was a legitimate son while Ishmael was born of a concubine, Hagar. But Isaac is born of Sarah, who is Abraham's wife. Now, you know how unusual that Isaac's birth was. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, which means that what God had to do was literally to remake the womb of Sarah in order for her to have a baby. And so Isaac was a miracle baby. But Abraham was told him, told to take him up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, and Abraham was willing to do that. He took him up on the mountain, which was an act of unparalleled faith that's never been seen up to that time at least. But now Hebrews records this, and it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up, listen, his only begotten son. Now there you see the same language in Hebrews that we have in 1 John, only begotten son. Now Isaac is a type of Christ. And Abraham is a type of God the Father, and Abraham offered his unique gift, the thing that was most valuable to him, the most prized possession. And then, of course, we could compare this to the, to the other scripture, one, the most famous scripture perhaps in the Bible that was recorded by John. And in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God's love is demonstrated, it's expressed in giving the only begotten son. It was a unique gift because there was none like him. Now secondly, it was the ultimate gift. And by ultimate, I'm speaking here about what Christ was asked to do. Now in, in this 
epistle of 1 John. John has been dealing with the incarnation. Uh, That's what previous discussion of doctrine, much of it was about. In the first chapter, it was the proof of the incarnation. John says what he had heard and what he had seen, what he had touched. And the ultimate here is not that Christ became a man to live among us. That's not the ultimate part of this. It's not that he he was incarnated and he became a man to live among us. Now, Christ was very valuable as a teacher. There's no doubt about that. In fact, concerning his greatest sermon, which is the Sermon on the Mount, there are many people that look at the Sermon on the Mount as merely good principles to live by. And that's the extent of the Sermon on the Mount to them. The extent of it is love and peace and harmony, and that teaches us to imitate Christ. Uh, All of it's taught through activity of imitation. Well, as we've studied in the past, the Sermon on the Mount, we know that people miss this, that there is no imitation of Christ. It's impossible to imitate Christ in in the way that he's talking about in that sermon because the sum total of everything that he said in the Sermon on the Mount was to come down to this, you have to be perfect as God is perfect. And so the Sermon on the Mount was intended to show us the hopelessness of imitation because God expects perfect obedience to every single word that Jesus said in that sermon. So where is it that the Sermon on the Mount leads us? Well, it doesn't lead us to the foot of Mount Sinai, not to the place where the law is given. It leads us to Mount Calvary, to where Christ was crucified to pay the sin debt. And so the Sermon on the Mount leads us to faith in Christ because he is our righteousness. Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 3, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so if Christ was nothing but a good teacher, and all that he did was to teach good principles, folks, we would remain as lost as Adam's goose. All of those good principles would be there. And the example that we are to live by would be there. And all of that has value. And Christ coming just to live a good life would be far, far more than we deserve. But it's not enough to deliver us from our sins. The great demonstration of God's love is in giving the ultimate gift that would do what? Well, John explains it. God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And what does it take for us to live through him? It takes the exchange of Christ's life for ours. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6, verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So Christ had to give his flesh, and that means his body. The body in which he became incarnate, that body has to die. Well, now we're getting to the ultimacy of the gift, only we're not quite there. Let's go over to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. And this is uh, familiar territory to those of you who've been stuck around for Wednesday night services for a long time. It almost seems incredible that it's been three years since I preached from this particular passage. 
But perhaps you remember some things about it. Uh, The message that I preached on this section was entitled, The Descent of the Son of God. Now, let me begin reading with verse 5 in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, I'm going to back up here three years going back. I'm going to give you some points that were in that outline concerning this passage of Scripture. And very quickly, I'm going to go through these until I get to the point that I want to get to. Uh, First of all, he endured, Christ endured subordination. Christ is equal to God. And the Scriptures are very clear about that. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. But in order for Christ to become a man, he had to leave the throne. He had to willingly submit himself to the Father's will. Secondly, he endured deprivation. In the human body, Christ purposely limited his power. Jesus walked wherever he went, but he could have just as easily with the speed of thought been anywhere that he wanted to go. When Christ was in the wilderness and he was hungry and he'd been there for 40 days and 40 nights, he could have easily turned every stone there into a loaf of bread and eaten that if he'd wanted to do it. When they first raised a hand to scourge Jesus, he could have right then called down fire from heaven and consumed every one of them. Or he could have just spoken the word and they would have been in hell just like that. And as Jesus said himself, I could call 12 legions of angels if I want to deliver me. And then thirdly, he endured separation. And we've already talked some about that. He was separated from his father That's something that had never happened in eons of eternity, had never happened. Fourthly, he endured degradation. Because when Jesus came to this earth, not only did he step down to be a man, but he didn't step down to be a rich man. He he didn't come here to live in a palace. He didn't live in a mansion on a hill, which he could have done. He could have lived in marble and had servants all around him. But he never owned a home. That's okay, because a lot of people don't own their homes But Jesus did more than that. He became a servant in his father's household. He became a servant, and he bent down, and he washed smelly feet. But here's the one that I'm mainly driving at tonight. Number five, he endured humiliation because Jesus kept going lower and lower. He kept descending. He stepped off the throne, and he didn't step down to the level of an angel, but he stepped down to the flesh of men. And he stepped even lower than that, not to be rich, as I've just said, but he stepped down to become a servant. He stepped down lower to die, and not to die of old age, and not to die as an honorable man or an honorable man's death, as a good man. He stepped down, actually, to the death of a criminal. He was scourged, and he was beaten to a bloody mess. And if he had died right then by the beating, maybe there would have been just a smidgen of dignity left. But it was worse than that, because he wasn't given the dignity of dying a Jewish death. He died a Gentile death. He died a death that was reserved for the worst of criminals. He was nailed naked to a cross. And that was the most humiliating death that was imaginable at that time. I mean, the cross is the worst reproach that's thinkable. But even the reproach of the cross is not the worst of it. 
Because there were two men that were crucified with Christ in the same manner at the same time. And there were thousands that had died on crosses in in the land of Israel and other places where the Roman government executed criminals. So what is it that actually made the death of Christ so different from all of those? Well, it was supremely humiliating because the foul stench of sin was upon him. Now, we might not think too much about that because we were born in sin. By nature, we're sinners. When we sin, we don't think too much about it. Uh, we may feel sorry about it sometimes and, and uh, say, I'm sorry, but then we go on and do the same thing over again. But not Jesus. He's holy. He's perfect. And so for eternity, he was sinless. It is just incomprehensible what it was like for sin to be placed upon him. And not one sin, but the sins of everybody, of all people from all time that would ever believe in him. He became a sinner. No, he did not become a sinner. I'm sorry, he did not become a sinner, but sin was hung on him. Sin was placed on him. Now, we don't know what that was like. And I suppose that the accounts of the, of the cross are very brief and there's not much explanation given. The agony of the cross is not described very much there. And it may be because there are no words to describe. I'm sure it's because there are no words to describe what Christ went through. We could better understand heaven. That Paul said, I can't even explain to you what it was like in heaven. We could better explain that than we could explain what happened to Jesus on the cross and what he felt. So the ultimate gift is that God gave his beloved son. And not only the, and the only begotten son, but, but, but that's not the worst of it. Not, not in the imagination of man, the worst thing that man can imagine. It's not the worst thing that angels could imagine. But if it were possible, it's worse than even God himself could imagine. See, God had never experienced this before. Now, I don't know how you explain that. I don't know how you put that into words. It's beyond our ability to reason all of that out. Martin Luther, the great theologian, was perplexed by it. And he said, how can this be God forsaking God? And so it was the ultimate. But even saying it's the ultimate is not, not ultimate enough. That's not enough to be adequate. So I believe that as John wrote these words that he was lost in wonder and amazement at what Christ did. Martin Luther couldn't understand it centuries afterwards. How do you think that John dealt with it? How how did he deal with it when he had met the Christ? When he had actually seen him, the one who's full of grace and truth? How does he die? John had to be thinking that. The apostles, when this happened, how can he die? How could God the Father do this to him? And then why would Jesus let it be done to him? Why? Well, there's only one answer for that. And it's right here in the Scripture before us. The answer is God is love. That's why it happened. That's why the Father did it. And that's why the Savior took the death of the cross. Because God is love. He came into the world that we might live through him. God's nature is love. And so what is his loving activity? He sent his son into the world at the greatest cost ever. It was self-sacrificing. And you know the most unbelievable part of it? I wish I had time to tell you. But I'm going to save that part for next week. I have too much to say. So it was a blank gift. It was a blank gift. And I want you to come back next week because there's much, much to talk about there. 
Now, last week I told you that the love of God is a very theological issue. You can't dismiss the theology of it. You can't just say, God is love, and I don't care about the doctrines that are involved. Well, the doctrine is what makes it powerful. The doctrine is what makes it meaningful. So you leave out the doctrine, and you don't know anything about God's nature. You'll never even begin to understand the significance of God's gift. So we'll talk about that next week. Letter C, it was a blank gift. What kind of gift was it? The very We talked about it was the ultimate gift. It's a unique gift. But what is that one? What makes it so special? We'll talk about it next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you give. We thank you, Lord, that you brought us here tonight. And what a great passage that we have before us. And there is so much to talk about here. It's impossible for us to get done in a night, in a week, in a year, in ten years, in a hundred years. Nobody could ever express what Jesus Christ did at Calvary with adequate words. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for each one who's come tonight. Thank you for salvation in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.